Stories of Communism 24, Unlicensed Meditation Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Today we have another great interview episode. We will be speaking to Chinese refugee Jennifer Zhang. Jennifer spent her young childhood among the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, and then grew up to find herself persecuted in the late 1990s for her practice of a modern Qigong offshoot known as Falun Gong. She described her harrowing experiences in a memoir called Witnessing History, One Woman's Fight for Freedom in Falun Gong. Manuel and I were recently able to chat with her over the phone about her experiences. Well, um, we'd like to get started with you, uh, Jennifer, because we're obviously impressed with your story, your mm-hmm. experience. Uh, you lived in China, and mm-hmm. ho- and hopefully we can get into uh, details of what was it like and many other things you can tell us about. you want to start, Eric? Yeah, sure. So I guess I noticed that from the year you were born, you probably grew up during the Cultural Revolution, uh, or at least when you were a young child. Do you have memories of of that period? Yes. Uh, My family was affected very, very badly because my father uh, graduated from a university and uh, as an intellectual, you know, during Cultural Revolution, if you are intellectual, you are wrong. You, they classified you as they they have nine uh, some kind of enemies of the country. So the intellectuals, intellectuals are one of them. So my father was somehow given a labor of, of a black pole of the capitalist. So he was publicly uh, denounced. And at that time, I was only one year old, and my mother had to help him, you know, uh, required him uh, putting up many uh, self-criticized letters, you know, uh, copied uh, with a brush, so very, very big letters, and put everywhere to criticize himself. And actually, he was in the hospital. He was dragged from the hospital to be publicly denounced. And later, he was relocated for, to a very small town, very remote area, and uh, which had only a population of 30,000. So I basically spent my childhood with my father in that small town. And for many years, my father and my mother um, were separated. They were not allowed to live together. So I lived with my father, my two sisters, with my mother. So we had to learn, uh, to visit each other in, in, the, in our school holidays. It took us many years to be moved together. So many, many things. It was very, very hard, very, very harsh life at that time. And uh, all the books, uh, were burned as you know the the interest the good books which are classical literature books uh, in Western world and in China were all burned as uh, they they call it poisonous for us. So you can only read the little red book, you know, of the communist propaganda. So 
uh, and materially, the life was very, very hard to everything you know you have you have a quotation. Uh, like a one family can maybe only have <coughs> half a tail of meat for uh, for for a month or something. Everything, everything you have a quota, you have a ticket to to buy everything. So materially, spiritually, uh, it's very, very bad period, bad memory. So what what year was this? Oh, it's it's last it's cultural revolution officially lasted for ten years from nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy six. So I was born exactly when the year uh, when cultural revolution started. So so from zero to to, to ten, uh, I spent in during cultural revolution. So I remembered a lot. Wow! So, so did things so what, get? What? Oh, I was gonna say, does things get better for you uh, after those ten years? Um. Uh, it depends how you look at it. I think after the Cultural Revolution ended in, the, I think, in early eighties, uh, the the country tried to rebuild the uh, legal system. Uh, during the Cultural Revolution, they demolished all the legal system, including court, uh, you know, judiciary uh, department, uh, that sort of thing. So they, they tried to uh, learn from, the, you know, after they adopted so-called open and openness and reform policy, they tried to learn from the Western countries, and they tried to re-establish this legal system. So my father was transferred back to the bigger city he was he was worked. So I followed my father uh, to the city and had um, my high school education there. But again, my mother and my uh, youngest sister were left left behind because the party didn't have quota for them to join us together. So our family. Were uh, was again separated, and uh, I didn't, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> lived with my mother. Um, I think she was finally able to join my father after I left my hometown for university uh, in Beijing. So uh, materially, uh, things uh, was a little bit better after the openness and. Uh, <clears throat> And so, so the called reform policy, and there was, uh, I think, a little, a short period of time when there was a little bit more freedom, and uh, and uh, uh, materially, and uh, things are getting a little bit better. Uh, so that's uh, that's a very small, I think, a short period of time, and then when I was in university. Well, everyone knows about the Tiananmen massacre, so we encountered that. And since then, I think things are getting very, very wrong. Well, on the one hand, I think because of the Western countries, this, they, their their policy of appeasing the party, they didn't record all the so-called engaging China policy, so foreign investment. Uh, pulled into China. So on the one hand, China, materially, uh, China's uh, economic things grow very, very fast. But on the other hand, politically and uh, 
societally, nothing, nothing changed, and all actually things are getting worse and worse. So, so we had Tiananmen massacre in 1989, and then 10 years later, we had this huge crackdown on Falun Gong, in which uh, around 100,000 people were cracked down, and um, many of them got killed alive for their organs. And then we got this Xinjiang Uyghur uh, compensation camp. So uh, this is a very, very, I think, dangerous uh, situation when materially you get rich and everybody, I think, uh, runs after money and lose their soul, lose their morality. And then when, when really, uh, and that kind of situation or that kind of economic model or social development model cannot last forever. It's not sustainable. And they also want to export their model to, to the West world. And now we see the result, like this pandemic, this coronavirus thing, everybody sees the result. It's exactly because this system system systematically cover up, systematically suppress speech, and now everybody uh, see the, the nightmare result of, of their way of governing their country, and uh, we, don't, we still don't know how many people have died. So do you think anything changed for better? I don't think so. Material wealth is, is nothing, and, uh, and when this kind of thing happens, everything could be wiped out. Maybe in several, several, I think, months, the decades of so-called achievement could be worked out very soon. Uh, Jennifer, um, back to when you were in school, mm -hmm. did you uh, were you able to tell the difference between communism and and freedom, or or you were just doing what everybody was doing? Because sometimes when when you haven't seen something else to compare, it's difficult to know that, that there's something wrong. Yes, you are absolutely correct. I still remember when Chairman Mao Mao died in 1976. I was 10 years old. And I remember I cried so badly. My heart was broken because at that time, uh, we, the, we were told, told Told that Chairman Mao was the great favor of, of, of all the Chinese people, and he established a new China. If without him, we will go back to the evil old society and live a miserable life. So when he died, I really felt the sky had, and had fallen and everything would go wrong, because how could we do without great leader Chairman Mao? So I think uh, until up when I was in the university, I still had very, very little idea what freedom was. I just followed throughout my middle school, high school, university. I just followed whatever the party told me. I even applied to, to join the party, and I thought that was a good thing because by joining the party, you are somehow... Uh, recognized by the system and by the society and you do maybe uh, make your family glorify or something. I really uh, didn't think much or knew much about the difference or 
or how the free world was until I ended up in Yale. And that time, that was the first time I think I started questioning what this party was doing. And uh, even after I left China, when I went to Australia, I remember very clearly uh, in, 19, uh, in 2001, when I gave a lecture to a group of the local community group, I think I talked about my experience in the labor camp as a Falun Gong practitioner. Uh, I always remember asking me about a question about Tibet because uh, she wants me to comment on today. And when I searched my memory, I suddenly found all in my mind was what the party told me about Tibetan people, how the party liberated them, how they were enjoying a good life under the communist leadership. I knew nothing at all of her suffering. So at that time, because myself suffered, I knew the party's propaganda must wrong, but I didn't know the truth. So I was still so embarrassed for the first time because I had a degree of Master of Science. I feel I thought myself as an educated person, but at that uh, spurt of moment, I suddenly felt I was so ignorant of the true situation of Tibetan, and I had to uh, say to that lady, I'm sorry, I I don't know much about this area. And then when I went back home, I quickly checked the internet and they found, wow, so many people were killed in Tibet by the CCP. So at that time, yeah. I was already 35, but I knew literally nothing because I lived in China. In China, you couldn't get any information of the true situation of Tibet. So well, that's how things work. Yeah, so... You um, you were exposed to the difference between education and indoctrination. Hmm? Yes. <laughs> yes. I think in China, the education system is basically the party offer you a system of standard answers, and you just try to uh, memorize what the party told you, and if you memorize them and repeat them in the test, in the exams, you do well, and that's that's basically what our system is doing. Hmm. Yeah. So, J Jennifer, um, so I, like I mentioned in our email, I've been reading your book, and um, yeah, your your personal story is fascinating. So, I'd like to get into that a little bit. Maybe talk about how your your daring acts of meditating in public got you sent to a labor camp, and what happened to you there. Yes, uh, basically, I. Uh, took up Falun Gong in 1997 uh, when my sister uh, introduced to me. At that time, I had been lying in the hospital for four to five years without being able to work. And so I took up this practice, and it helped me recover very, very quickly. Virtually within one month, I feel totally recovered. And I did a test, a blood test, and everything was all right. My hepatitis C gone without a chance. So I continued to practice this uh, for two, uh, two years, and until 1999, suddenly... Uh, they launched an overwhelming crackdown, so virtually round up uh, everyone they, they know uh, who is Falun Gong practitioner. So I 
was arrested four times since 1999 and threw into a female labor camp in Beijing in 2002 and uh, 2000. And the condition there was just, uh, we could say, a living hell on earth. So the first sound we heard uh, when we were in the camp was screwed down and the crackdown of the electric bantons. And everybody on the first day, we were forced to squat under the baking sun for 15 hours. And, and there were so many elderly ladies, lead, uh, ladies who couldn't endure it and fainted away. And as soon as somebody fainted away, they shocked us with electric bantons to, to awake us. And then we had to continue to squat like that endlessly. So the torture was beyond description. Wow, so how long were you in that camp? For one year. Wow, so what what else uh, happened during that year? I guess since it's a labor camp, they made you do some work or something? Were you actually, like, making items for export, or what did they have you do? Yes, uh, yes, you are right. So the, it, it is called uh, re-education through forced labor. So we, we were forced to do all kinds of labor, and uh, the majority of the, uh, the work we did in a camp is to hand sweet sweaters and had make made toys, cushions, and uh, we, we even received an order from Nestle, the, the sweet uh, company which made coffee, uh, to make 100,000 pieces of promotional stuffed rabbits for them so they can use it as a pro promotional item. So every day we had to uh, get up at 5.30 in, in the morning and work till midnight, no sleep at all, and the cola was so, so heaven. You know, after I used the toilet, I even dare not to wash my hand, because for one, washing hand waste one minute of my time. Two, if I wash my hand, my my hand uh, my hand became damp, and it was a damp hand. You couldn't meet at your fattest speed. So that was uh, how heavy the quota was. And sometimes, in order our products could catch the plane to the Western country for the next day. And the police did tell us very proudly that all the products we made were exported to foreign countries, so we must ensure their quality. So sometimes we didn't get sleep at all. We worked overnight. And every day there were a very long period of time. Every day the only thing on my mind is how could I reach my quota today? How can I have one minute more sleep today? Sometimes people ask me, do you miss your family or not in the labor camp? I said, no, honestly, no, because every day my mind was either occupied with this thought, how can I get one more minute to sleep, or with how can I resist this uh, transforming attempt for another day? So another story in the camp was to uh, get us 
reformed, which means to get, uh, to get us to give up our belief in Falun Gong or in truth, compassion, and forbearance, which are the main principles of Falun Gong. So we have to convert to communism and to admit the party is doing a great thing by cracking crackdown on us. So if we don't give up, they torture us endlessly, and they encourage and force the criminals to torture us and give them reward if they torture us. So the method they use, you couldn't, you know, uh, imagine sleep deprivation. If you don't reform, they don't allow you to sleep, or you, they force you to stand in the corridor overnight, um, and night after day, day after night, and continually torture you. So every day you were put under this huge mental pressure. When, how, how longer can you last? You, you see people around you one by one got break, break, broken down by them. And I witnessed the, the moment of a young woman uh, became insanity. One minute earlier, she was saying, oh, she wasn't given sleep for five days, four, four nights, or something like that. And she was constantly attacked during those several days, day and night. And she, one minute earlier, she was saying to them, you want me to reform? I want to be a good person so I practice Falun Gong. You want me to uh, to be reformed and to act like some like you, no way. But then one minute later, she suddenly laughed so loudly and said, "Oh, now I, I finally understand. Give me a piece of paper. Give me pen. I'll write whatever you ask me to write." She laughed so strangely, so loudly, and I knew she had been driven into insanity. She was no longer herself. She lost her mind. And there were so many times I, I knew I was on the very verge of total collapse. Uh, and it's not, uh, not only collapse, I would be like her. I would become somebody insane. And, and that kind of fear is also beyond description. Wow, very, very difficult experience, Jennifer. I'm wondering yes. if, um, do you ever see your parents? No, my parents, because I was in Beijing, my parents was in Sichuan province, that's thousands of miles away. Actually, my father uh, was a top lawyer in Sichuan province, top 10 lawyer in Sichuan province, but... As soon as the crackdown started, all the lawyers in the city was gathered together and uh, gave, gave instructions, which, um, number one, you are not allowed to defend Falun Gong practitioners. Number two, Falun Gong practitioners are uh, politically wrong, so you cannot defend them as, as a normal, uh, as a normal, in normal case. So he knew very well there, there was no way he could uh, help me, so he, he never tried. So they never uh, get a chance to visit me. 
uh, in Beijing. And uh, for the first few months, they had a policy, if you don't reform, uh, your family is not allowed to visit you. For the other, you know, other criminals, other people, non-fungal practitioners, uh, they got a family visit per month. But for fungal practitioners, only after you reform. If you don't reform, no family uh, visits. When was the last time you were in China? Oh, that's 2001. I was released uh, in April 2001 and escaped um, in September. And since then, I've never uh, gone back to China. Uh, because I couldn't. Well, number one, it's not safe. Number two, they would not give me a visa. So how did, how did you, you get uh, released and escape? Yeah. Oh, that's another heartbreaking story. Uh, like I said, after uh, witnessing and experiencing so many bad things around me, uh, the first day I, I, I was in the camp, I, I had a feel, why? What am I? Am I wrong? Am I going back to a last concentration which I read in the history book? I just couldn't believe this is happening in the 20th century, somewhere only 20 kilometers away from Tiananmen Square. So, and then after all witnessing so much darkness around me, I six months later I developed a very very strong desire to write a book to document my first-hand experience because I do think humankind should know what's happened in there and humankind should learn the lesson. And, uh, and because at that time, I was the only, I think, one with a master's degree. I somehow felt very strongly it is my responsibility uh, to write a book about it. So I developed a very, very strong desire to write a book about this. But immediately I was faced with a dilemma. If I don't reform, I will never be released. They, they made it very clear, no reform, no release. If I want to be released, I had to reform. So I struggled for I don't know how long, and the battle within my mind almost killed me another thousand times. And finally, somehow I forced myself to write a statement or to uh, or a team paper to say I would give up Sanago. And, and at that moment, I feel like my life has been taken away. Because having practiced Falun Gong and embodied with the, the truthfulness, compassion, forbearance for two years, this principle had already become part of my life. So to go against them felt like killing myself. And what's worse, it's not just a guarantee paper is enough. Later, we had so high standard for, for the so-called reform. You had to write long, long articles to attack your own belief, to, to attack Father God, just like they are asking a Christian to attack Jesus or like a, like a child to attack your own parents. 
And then you have to go public to read out your long, long articles in front of all the person in the lab, labor camp and got videotaped. And then you have to help the police to torture your fellow practitioners who had not been reformed yet. If you don't do all of this, you are still regarded as not having been reformed. So every day, those kind of torture was far worse than the electric patterns applied on me. So that's why I said I was pushed to the very, very verge of total collapse. And that six months is the darkest uh, days for me. I felt so much. There were so many times I couldn't make peace with myself. I don't know what to do. And uh, I just couldn't describe the difficult and what the price I paid to be released so that I can tell my story to the world. Wow. Do other Chinese uh, uh, citizens that you talk to, do they understand your story better than most people, or they do they think you're a little bit crazy for doing all those things you did? Yes, I found it very, uh, it's much easier to find a sympathetic listener in the West than in, in among Chinese community. Number one, because uh, since the crackdown happened, they launched uh, at the same time overwhelming propaganda campaign against Falun Gong. So every Falun Gong was demonized. They, they said so many bad things on Falun Gong. Even today, many people are still believing Falun Gong people are crazy. They burn themselves, they kill their child, they abandon their family, and they are ridiculous. Uh, you know, people with uh, believing in all this kind of nonsense. So they think, and, and also, even if they don't think so, they, they still think if the party wants you to do something, why go against the party? Why make things so hard for yourself? Why just not, you know, do whatever the party uh, asks you to do? What is consciousness? So the whole, I think, a Chinese society after the, so many years of the Chinese Communist Party's ruling, there was no much sense of social justice or morality or respect for others. And I think the highest, highest principle today in China, maybe one number one go after money, or maybe number two go after the party, or maybe they are the same thing. So if you are not uh, the same mindset with um, everybody, uh, think you are different, you are strange, and if you are different, you are strange, you should be eliminated. Why make things hard for us? And if you make trouble for us, if you, you know, they also had this code of, um, uh, I don't know how to say it in English, which is, means if in one work unit there's one person practicing Falun Gong, they punish the whole work unit. Like in the labor camp, if uh, one person in, in that uh, unit 
or they, they call us a class. They, they stay at the school. In this, in this unit or in this class, don't reform. Everybody don't, don't get uh, any sleep at that night. So, so they turn people against us uh, for you know, uh, in getting them into trouble as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's the, I think, very... Uh, of course, there are some uh, Chinese people who are, who are very sympathetic for, to us uh, or who understand. But uh, overall, I think the percentage of people who are against the Falun is still huge, very, very huge. And, uh, and, and the propaganda machine is still tightly controlled. And if they already got this bad idea about you, it's very, very hard to clear those things out of their mind. Well, Eric, do you have anything else? Uh, because we're going to be running out of time here with our interview. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe, um, Jennifer, do you have any sort of message for, for the Americans who think that uh, we should just uh, interact with China like any other modern nation and that if we just, you know, treat them as a, a normal partner, they'll come around and become freer? Is, is that going to work or do you think we should act differently? Definitely, we should not treat the Communist Party as a, a normal member of the of the international community. Community, I think their nature, their inborn nature, was against humanity. Like they, they came in a communist manifesto, they want to uh, abolish all existing human civilization, and they want to conquer the world. And I think very clearly, even um, no matter what they said on the surface, they never changed that essence of theirs. And their purpose, I think, is to destroy China, to destroy Chinese civilization. That's what they've been doing for all these years. And also to destroy the whole world with their one belt, one road, with their over-conquer the world mentality. And uh, I think if we don't recognize their evil nature and we don't uh, try to defend ourselves, we will learn very, very heavy lessons. And I think we are starting to see that now. This cover-up of this uh, coronavirus pandemic has also has already done so much damage to the Chinese people's lives and put all the uh, countries, so many countries, at risk. That's because their way of their nature. They they have they they are they are good to, to to do things this way to cover up the pandemic and to do and to uh, endanger the world because in their mind. What's most important is their power, their social stability. It's not people's life, or the, uh, especially so the, the life of foreigners. Foreigners, especially Americans, are always China's number one enemy. So I, I hope American people can uh, realize this and don't harbor any really illusion about this party, engaging the party. The party will never change. A poison will be always a poison. It cannot stop being poisonous. So I think we should get rid of the poison from ourselves, from our country, and try to uh, see through it for what it is. And 
act accordingly. I think we should all keep Jennifer's story in mind whenever we're out shopping and see a Made in China label on some merchandise. But once again, we've just touched on a few of Jennifer's experiences in today's chat. There's a lot more detail in her memoir. You can find more information and a link to the book in our show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.